0: good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is October 3rd, 2016, and I am your host, William Hill, as usual. Uh, Today is our monthly edition of Faith in Practice, where uh, Greenville Seminary President Dr. Joseph Piper sits down with the listeners, the questions of the listeners, and he interacts with these questions and answers them on the air uh, for you. And uh, this week, as usual, we have a number of great questions uh, on tap uh, to deal with, and uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. let me um first quickly tell everybody uh, what we're going to be doing on the podcast in the next few weeks um uh, specifically related to this faith and practice uh, segment of the program I have um, moved a-, a-, a few programs around to try to um, uh, bring the faith and practice questions close uh segments closer to each other so that when they're recorded they get released within a week or two um, after the recording so um just a, a programming note, you can find that information on our website at confessingourhope.com. Of course, there's the seminary website at gpts.edu and would encourage you to go to that website and, and avail yourself of the resources there. And of course, it's never too early to be talking about the 2017 Greenville Seminary Spring Theology Conference that's held every year in March, and uh, this year uh, the the conference will be dealing with um, the Reformation, specifically uh, the life and work of Martin Luther. So all that information is on the gpts.edu website, and would again encourage you to go there and avail yourself of that resource. So, Doctor Pipe, it's great to have you back on the program after a few uh, a couple months of technological snafus we've resolved it and um so we're we're back in the swing of things and so it's good to have you back on and talk to you again
1: well thank you um, although we still did our program for the two months we just didn't have our best
0: wasn't our, our best. best no it wasn't our best 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 audio um but uh, we've solved that and so we're back uh back to the higher level uh, a better quality than we've had in the past uh last two anyway so why don't you pray for us right. and then we'll uh we'll jump right in
1: Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a great God who has revealed himself to us. We thank you for your word, our only rule of faith and practice. We thank you for the sufficiency of Scripture, and we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit who takes the wisdom of Christ and makes it ours through Scripture. And we ask that he would do so now, enable us to understand your word as it applies to these questions forgive us of our sins and be honored and glorified in this broadcast for Christ's sake.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Piper, we're going to continue where we left off last month. Let me
1: just uh, piggyback one thing. A connection with the uh, conference is our prospective student conference, which is Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning uh, before the uh, spring conference. And uh, that a student who comes to that can get lodging, But also then can go to attend the conference for $10 if you come as a prospective student. So you people get that on your calendars and join us for a really great Reformation conference.
0: Excellent. Very good. And I did fail to mention that. And it is an excellent um, uh, pre-conference event as well. chapel special chapel service and and whatnot so all right we're gonna we're gonna continue really where we left off last month Uh, we didn't finish all the questions that were submitted last month and Probably, well, depending, Lord willing, we'll get through all of these, but I don't know. They're, they're, they're pretty involved and lengthy questions, but we'll do the best we can. So we're going to start with William. He writes in through Twitter. And and you can, listeners, you, you are able to submit questions through Twitter. Just use the hashtag GPTSFP, and I will get those questions and put them in the queue for Dr. Piper. So it, this comes
1: in. And if you're listening and you, and you want to uh, tweet a follow-up question... If yep. you're listening live, then do so, we'll monitor that as well.
0: Yep, I have it running right in front of me, so by all means, uh, do that as well. But uh, William writes in, and he, uh, he mentions, asked the question, he, he, he said that Dr. Pipe asserted that Old Testament saints did not experience union with Christ. What about Adam and Eve? But, so I think this is a past broadcast yes. that you must. Thank have you William him, that you must have done. Uh,
1: we must be careful not to confuse communion and union. Adam and Eve had communion with God in the garden uh, before the fall, so he would come and walk with them, and that's communion that we will enjoy uh, in heaven with the triune God uh, forever. Union has to do with the peculiar relationship that a believer has with Christ, and it is the risen Christ who is in union with his people through the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Now that's what I'm saying. That the Old Testament saints could not have experienced it in the same way because Christ was not yet incarnate, and so it uh, uh, they had the work of the Spirit. They could have communion with God. Uh, you see that in the Psalms, uh, but we have uh, this intimate Christ living in us power, and that's that's the difference. It's the resurrected Christ who has regenerated us by His Spirit and by the Spirit indwells us that's the uniqueness
0: very good and and William writes in again using Twitter and and just a just a, a note for the listeners and I've said this before and I just want to be very clear um, the seminary is is working closely with the banner of truth to bring this program uh, to the listeners and so as a result when you submit a question and Dr. Pepe uses it on the air uh, we send you a ten dollar discount code coupon code that you can use to purchase books through the banner of truth however um that doesn't mean if if you send me 10 questions and they're all used on the same program you're going to get 10 different codes all right doesn't work that way if you send 10 questions you're going to get one code if you send one question you're going to get one code so i just want to clarify that because there was some confusion with some listeners in the past and just want to reemphasize that again so william does write in he does ask uh about Dr. Piper's thoughts on church nurseries for infants or toddlers during worship, and what about for church visitors?
1: Thank you, William. Just space your questions out one a month and you'll be fine. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> Very important it question. Is. Is. Uh, I and the seminary are committed to our uh, children being in corporate worship, and that means from uh, infancy on. Uh, but there is the realization uh, that a child, an infant, say between six months and a year to 18 months, part of their development is a lot of movement and making noise. Nothing wrong about that, but it's simply a period of time that the child needs to move and make noise as part of development. So I encourage churches to have a nursery or a cry room uh, for those covenant children in that age span. But the second part of the question is very sensitive and important. If we really want to reach uh, the people in our neighborhoods, both the unconverted and those who are not in sound churches, we need to have nurseries. Uh, You bring a, a family to church, they've not been in church, they've been in a church where the children have not been with them, and you expose their children to having to sit in corporate worship, what's normally a longer service anyway. And, you know, unless the spirit has highly motivated them, they're not going to be back the next week. And so I see a nursery also as an outreach. I think that a church should have a nursery. It should be uh, uh, policed uh, according to the, uh, the best material we have in terms of protection of children. And it should be the cleanest and most attractive room in the church building not for our members although it's there for that unique age but for visitors and so it's for me it's part of a means of grace outreach and then as a couple begins to come and they get themselves acclimated and you get them through discipleship you can work with them on how their children can sit in service And so, yes, by all means, have a nursery uh, as part of
0: outreach. You mentioned the cry room, Dr. but My my office, my study at the church is the cry room as well. I have the the window in my study. (laughs) So sometimes our younger families with small children, they, they go in my study and they can see oh, through the window. Oh, I thought window, your study
1: was on the other side and the cry room is on the rise. Right.
0: No, we changed it. And I did that for strategic reasons, uh, namely the window. Yeah. Um, okay. If I am counseling in situations that it just protects me a little more, okay. and people can see in. And but um, but yeah, have that have that available and resource. It's great um, opportunity. It's it's a, it's an option for ch- uh, for. For parents with younger children, it just gives them. And we have the speakers in there, and they can hear the sermon. And
1: but if you you have a nursery, be sure you check with the local guidelines in terms of the type of training you want to do. I mean, most of our small churches going to be volunteer, (coughs) but most guidelines now are two people in a nursery, Um, and just some other basic guidelines that you can take people through. Uh, in this crazy age in which we live, so that we can assure parents that the children are protected as well.
0: That's right. Yep. Very, very good. Well, Virginia writes in, longtime listener to the program, and and um, from Brazil. And a a similar question, it's related. Uh, She uh, asks, in your opinion, is it it necessary to divide (laughs) the children in age groups in Sunday school classes and adults? Is it also necessary to have various classes with different subjects?
1: Thank you, Virginia. (coughs) Yes, and yes, if possible. Uh, Yes. You know, there's uh, been a lot lately of this uh, Uh. Um. Family based uh, church education program. The children are in the Sunday school class, the children are in worship, and that the parents have the responsibility to teach the children. And they do, but so don't the elders in the church. And it's a joint covenantal responsibility. And if we want our children to sit through the worship service and the sermon, then we ought to provide for them age appropriate instruction. Uh, taking them through the basic development of their childhood through the scriptures. And mm-hmm. so I highly encourage uh, children and age groups in Sunday school classes. I also encourage uh, adult classes to as a church develops and has the resources. So basically what we did when I pastored in Houston was developed an adult Bible school. And so we had, uh, often running uh, every quarter, uh, let me back up, we had a, a, a four-year cycle, and so we always did a, th- a, a three-quarter, nine-month uh, Bible survey, Old Testament, another Bible survey, New Testament, a systematic theology, and a church history. So there was a four-year cycle there. Then we usually would have a book of the Bible study, uh, working through different books of the Bible, and then practical issues. And we actually built into our Sunday school curriculum then not just apologetics and ethics, but teacher training, uh, the officer training. And then we had our new members course. And so I trained teachers and many teachers would develop a course and it would they would come up in their cycle, they would have a couple of courses in over the uh, four-year period that they would teach and continue to develop. So for me that's the goal and actually there's a guideline that curriculum is printed if somebody sends uh, an email to Bill, I'll try to find that and uh, get that uh, to you. But I think we should do a much better job with adult education in the church than what we are doing. We, we can d- tremendous job of training and discipling people and plus that way you've got your adults doing something while the children are in uh, in the Sunday school program and then a lot of churches are doing a, say on a Wednesday night a, what we call a cat kids program and taking the children again age based through the catechism and if you want to get material on that, uh, write us and we'll get hook you up with uh, Derek Scott, a ruling elder at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church here in town in Greenville, who uh, has organized that program at Woodruff Road and it's now being um, implemented. Our others are being helped as they do their own uh, around the country.
0: Very good. And good question. And and if you do need to email me, uh, you can do that at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Very simple. Name of the podcast at gpts.edu. Our next question comes in uh, again through Twitter. And um, the question is, it, it has to do with modernizing the Westminster Standards. So, so the, they, uh, the, the listener asks, considering that various modern translations of the Bible exist, what are your thoughts on a modernization of the Westminster Standards?
1: Well, there are. Uh, some modernizations. There is a modern translation of the Confession of Faith, and uh, Chad Van Dixhorn's very fine book, his commentary on the Confession of Faith, published by Banner of Truths. You can use your your $10 um, code and get that book. He has both the uh, original text and then a modern text. Then uh, there are also modern texts on the Catechism. Uh, my only desire would be is that if we start using such a text, that it would be approved by uh, the church court, so that in Presbyterianism mm-hmm. by either what we call a journal assembly or the synod, and so that it's been examined uh, carefully and uh, adopted. But yes, I think even a simple modernization, getting rid of the um, consisteth, uh, provideth mm. type words to... Uh, English and getting used and, and whatever in there would be very useful
0: yeah very good question I know even as I'm continue to review the shorter catechism I, I get tripped up by some of those consisteth and exalteth <laughs> you know it, those words that <laughs> it's like why can't I just use what I would normally say in my modern vernacular And but anyway and I think even you uh, Dr. Pipe if I remember correctly taking your classes you you didn't mark off on the, for the students if they used like no consistent no, you instead of consistent right 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 yeah but I think you make a great point that the church courts really need to be involved in this so we don't want to get we don't want to use a modern term that gets away from uh, the 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 true understanding of what the the divines were, well, were were actually in a sense saying plus
1: it also though hurts uniformity I mean one of my problems with the plethora of Uh, modern translations is we don't have a church approved uh, translation. We have marketing uh, translations. It happens to be that, in my very poor opinion, uh, the ESV did a better job of marketing and it's not a superior translation to the New American Standard but it was marketed much better. So a lot of our churches simply picked it up. But at least the session should be recommending to each congregation. And and in my circles, uh, either the New King James, the NASV, or the ESV are the versions. And and so if, if at least the session can recommend um, that we'll put this in the pew, this is, you know, if you want to bring your different one, that's fine, but this is what we'll preach from and whatever. Get some kind of uniformity. But then we'll have the same problem with the confession if we don't have some uh, broader mm. uh, church body approving it.
0: Yep, yep, that's right. And if you're it's using the, same, the confession, same way now you worship. go to a
1: church and it's like three different versions of the Apostles' Creed. I don't like that. You know, I think that we ought to be using the same version until we have, as a General Assembly, uh, formally uh, changed uh, change the language. Uh, some churches keep the. Uh, Holy Ghost and the quick and the dead and and some of those phrases and some churches take out descended into hell. The new Trinity hymnal has a little different version in the back than than what has been been traditionally the version used by the church, and so I think it's just good in these things that if we can get uniformity, it's very important.
0: Yep. Well, it's a very good question with a lot of tangential <clears throat> issues connected. Uh, to us. So thank you, Virginia, for listening uh, faithfully, as usual, and for writing. That wasn't in. Virginia's, that was Chris's, and... Oh, no, you're right. Thank you for that correction. That's right. That's right. But I thank Virginia for listening anyway. Oh, yes. Virginia's probably <laughs> listening right now. She probably is. Well, Chris writes in from Indiana, and um, he, he has a question re- re- related related to systematic theology in small groups. It's really two different questions, and we're, I'm not going to uh, read the background to the question. I'm just going to take the the two questions that he submitted here in order. Um, and do you want to handle these together no, or we'll, separately? They're,
1: they're enough different. We'll handle them separately.
0: Okay. So the first question he asks is, "What books are what book or books on systematic theology would you recommend to a lay leader within the church
1: <laughs> and to keep in his library?"
0: And to keep in his library. That's right.
1: Okay, uh, Chris. Uh, well, of course, we start with the Westminster Confession of Faith and the, the larger and shorter catechism, and there's some very useful commentaries. The older one, A.A. A. Hodge, on the confession. I think Greenville Seminary has Beattie's commentary on the confession, and I've already mentioned Chad Van Dixhorn. On the larger catechism, we've got three good tools. We've got the oldest, Ridgely, uh, two volumes. Uh, Voss has a Nice one-volume, I think, Banner Truth. You can use your certificate for that. And then recently, uh, Joe Moorecraft has uh, done a, a five-volume uh, commentary on larger catechism that is just quite remarkable. Uh, the shorter catechism, you've got G.I. Williamson. You also have uh, G.I. Williamson on the uh, Confession of Faith. And you've got uh, uh, G.I. Williamson and a couple of other tools on the shorter Catechism. So start there. Uh, then I think that uh, two sets that you could surely have in your home library would be Dr. Smith's two volumes. They're accessible. He really, people wrongly think that Dr. Smith only drank it one well, but he actually, it's always impressed me is that from the days I studied under him until now using his book as a textbook that Dr. Smith knew the depth and breadth of Reformed theology, both historically and contemporary. Well, at least for him, contemporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's very, uh, very useful. And then the other one I think we ought to have in our homes is Burkhoff. Uh, Burkhoff, again, like Smith, uh, uh, has widely used his sources, but he particularly gives us Bavink, in very easy and uh, e- easy to grasp language, long before Bob Inc. was translated into English. And so Bob Inc's systematics, and if for high school students, you could start them in Bob Inc.'s, uh manual, which is kind of an abbreviated version of his systematics. And then from that point, uh, in the church library or in your home library, again, uh, there's no end to what people can profit from. Um, older, uh, systematics would be, of course, uh, Bob Inc. that, da- well, back all the way up to Turreton and Turretin will demand a, a bit more of you. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, Bob Inc. uh, Dabney, uh, Hodge out of the, the modern late 20th century, I think, uh, Bob Raymond
0: is uh, mm-hmm. one
1: that, um, In many areas, is useful. Plus, in in Dr. Raymond, you get uh, a good bit of exposure to historical uh, theology as as well. So that's a place to start. And God bless you as you make your way through them. Did you mention Thornwell? Well, he said systematics. So Thornwell is very useful.
0: That's yeah. You're
1: right. You're right. The first volume is some of the early systematics, but his. I mean, I didn't go into collected works. Warfield and Thornwell should be right there, and then mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. you go back. Oh, forgive me. The very f- after the Confession, the very first book you should have is Calvin's Institutes. And anybody, glad I'm glad you caught that. <laughs> I, uh, I started reading Calvin's Institutes uh, in high school. Now we didn't make a lot of progress, but. Uh, again, a, a high school student that applies himself to the institutes uh, can do can do quite well with them.
0: Do you have a particular oh, uh, and translation like, of the institute? Do you have a particular translation of the institutes that you would prefer? I, I like the uh, Westminster Press one. Okay, uh, so McNeil's yeah, McNeil's translation. Yeah.
1: Well, he's the editor. I don't think he's the translator. But anyway, you're right. You're right. And then, then uh, my wife's been looking at the new one that that is the. Uh, the Banner Truth did that's I think it was the French edition
0: it is, it's the French and edition and
1: it's not as, as, it's an earlier work so it won't have everything but it's quite well written as well
0: yes and and you mentioned and would take take a little bit of work and, and then you mentioned Bavink well I've been reading through Bavink and it, that takes some work too and uh, woof there, there is, there is a, a one volume Bob right. Bobin that yep. synthesizes down his four volumes um, I, I, quite nicely. I've actually preferred that um, in reading um, over against. Yes. This plus. So of uh, course. In uh, Burkov, you get, you get pretty much the same thing as well. That's right. That's
1: right. Well, a second. I'm glad question, you mentioned uh, the the one volume though, because you got that one volume on Bobin. It's a good place for a uh, a layperson to start. And Then, of course, you've got. All of these collected works um, that we have available in our day—that when I was a young man in, in college and seminary and starting a ministry, we didn't have. So we got all these Puritan collections now, and and uh, uh, Manton and and Bridges, and you just go on and on and on.
0: Well, you got Perkins now. Uh, Reformation Heritage is doing Perkins, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Right. Um, I'm
1: going to edit. I think Volume Eight of Perkins. So.
0: Yep. And so those are out and I've ha- I have all of- I have the Two ones that are Two of those are out right these. now I guess. Uh, yep. Yep, so it's Yeah, we live in a really in, uh information rich time uh, uh thanks to RHB banner um putting these kinds of materials out there. So there's plenty there to to dip into and be well-informed. Now, the second question is about small groups. He, he asked, what would a, what would be a confessional reformed view on small groups and are there any resources to help think through how to use small groups well from a confessional perspective?
1: Okay, uh, with the first part, I don't think there is particularly a confessional reformed view on small groups as a methodology.
0: Yeah. Mm. Uh,
1: I think that an idea of a, of a small group uh, for accountability, uh, a Bible study, um, a, uh, a group of men or women getting together to pray, there's lots of different ways to uh, use small groups. But I'm going to take the question, having read the background as well, that Chris is really thinking about a methodology in the church where uh, many churches are using small groups in the place of a Sunday evening service or in the place of a, uh, say, midweek service. Now, to answer those differently, I, I do not want to replace Sunday evening corporate worship with a small group.
0: Mm -hmm. Because
1: I believe there's sufficient biblical inference that we worship twice on the Lord's Day, and I think we're depriving our people of that uh, blessing as well as the honor that goes to God from a second service. Um, And a lot of churches have gone to small groups because they couldn't get people in second service, but I doubt if the demographics are much different in terms of – the. at the end of the day, the people that finally get out and – uh, attend one of these activities. Now, on a midweek, many of our churches are, are have wide demographics. I, I think when I pastored in Houston, I think we figured the average drive time was something like maybe forty minutes, mm. and that made it difficult in a metropolitan city with men having also uh, often late work hours to do a midweek meeting at the church. So we uh, one of the things that we would do over the years we did it differently uh, was to meet in homes. Uh, now, when I went there it was mostly meeting in homes to do studies. What I would encourage for the small groups is to meet in home for prayer. Uh, corporate prayer is really the missing ingredient in uh, in our churches. So even if you have a small group on a Wednesday night or Thursday night, I would devote that to a very brief devotional and to prayer. I don't know that a church needs another study period. If you have uh, sound biblical preaching on the Lord's Day in two services, and then particularly if you have adult uh, Sunday school uh, where serious study is being done, we don't need another instruction time. What we need is prayer time. So I encourage, and, and what we ended up, I think, the last time, bit of time I was in Houston, we would meet in homes, um, say on a four Wednesday month, three of those, and meet together at the church for uh, once a month, the congregation together, and then we would have a prayer meeting. On Sundays, 30 minutes before the worship service. And that prayer meeting was devoted <laughs> exclusively to praying for preaching and evangelism and missions. So it was our kingdom uh, prayer meeting. Now, as a methodology, the small groups of people to getting together and having a study and, and sharing, and uh, that is the methodology that churches are using. If you're going to use it, again, this is in the background, I think it should be, there should be an elder present at any small Mm -hmm. group
0: Mm -hmm. uh, to be be sure that everything stays uh, on track biblically. What if you're going to have a a ladies-only group, Dr. Piper?
1: Okay, I'm going to go that direction in a minute. So now a a ladies Bible study, when we finish, so then we could also just have Bible studies. There would be a men's Bible study or a ladies Bible study. Um, If a church opts for that, now one of the things that and we were pretty stubborn pastorally, uh, particularly when we started the church in California, so we start from scratch. Uh, when everybody in the church is attending prayer meeting regularly, then we'll think about another Bible study during the week. But if we have very poor attendance at prayer meeting, why start a women's Bible study? That's right. That's and right. so uh, that that is the line that that the session, uh, took there if a church has a women's Bible study uh, the material should be approved uh, by the session that a woman is teaching and oftentimes I mean as a pastor I taught the women's study in Houston for years and uh, there's no you know this stupid idea that only a woman can teach women no <laughs> the man who's been set aside by God to instruct the sheep and so I actually taught the women's Bible study myself then uh, in in the church, and the women loved it.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's we're wrestling with that, and that's the reason why I threw that in there. Um, uh, ladies' Bible study. Um, what's my role in that? Other than the obvious, as as an elder in the church and improving uh, the material that they the, the ladies submitted three or four different possibilities to the session, and we reviewed them and 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 came back with our answer. And um, but the question, of course, still sits on the table is you know how much involvement should I have as the teaching elder in the church? And I think we we kind of fell on the I, I would come in from time to time and, and just maybe observe and watch and, and approve a woman who's approved to teach the other ladies fine, but I'd be there to hear and listen to what's going on, but not necessarily be directly responsible for the teaching portion. But maybe from maybe in, in different times do teach uh, more difficult subjects because they want to do some theological like they're going to use your book, in fact, Doctor Pike, but they're going to use your well, book. That's what I was going to recommend. On, <laughs> <laughs> on the Westminster Confession, they wanted. They said, "Why is it only the men are studying the meaty theological things? We want to study meaty theological things too." And I said, "Hey, by all means, have at it." Um, and you know, but here's what I would recommend you use because it's laid out very nicely, and you don't have to do a lot of legwork. Frankly, it's there in front of you. You have the teacher's edition in the back of the book to guide you along. And I said, "Why not not just use that?" And so that's what they're going to do. And but when they get into some more difficult uh, subjects like the next question <laughs> that we're going to talk about here in a minute uh, maybe it would be better if I come in and do that portion just because of its difficulty so um but it's really a good question and you're right I think a lot of churches and I and I really do so much appreciate your practical statement about uh, you know for if, if we're having a church prayer meeting corporate prayer meeting and no one's coming no one's coming so why why are we doing br- why are we doing these Bible studies in other small groups when we we don't have corporate prayer being faithfully attended? That's a problem, and um, and that that is so. I wish the churches would hear that more. Um, we need to be together praying as a people, and not off in our little homes cloistered together doing these other things. If we're not able to come together and pray, and um, There's only so many days in the week, and we we encourage our families to do family worship. And so I'm always wrestling with the fact that, you know, if I pull the men out of their house at night to do a men's Bible study, uh, now that's another night of the week they're out of the house that they're not leading their families in family worship. And I I wrestle with that as a a pastor and as a father, well, not so much actively responsible for that now, but as a husband with a wife. So um, there's a lot of issues connected to this. It's not— a simple question to answer, but it's one that we should probably answer uh, very carefully. Before you, um, before
1: you move on, though, I want yep. to say something else about the Wednesday night prayer meeting. There's a custom here in South Carolina that is so useful for Wednesday night prayer meeting for churches that are spread out and for men that have long work hours. And that is the church will provide an, a meal. And it can be as simple as when they started doing this at one of the churches, they simply brought pizza in each week.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: then as they Mm -hmm. grew a bit, then one week was pizza, and then the families in the church began to rotate, being responsible to bring in a casserole. The larger churches actually uh, prepare meals. Uh, Some have volunteers doing that, others uh, actually then they're large enough to pay, so uh, somebody that's... And at Woodruff Road, where we go to prayer meeting, uh, the lady in the church uh, uh, prepares delightful meals, and, and she's on the, on the payroll. But then the women and the men in the church pick in with serving and cleaning up afterwards and such as that. So anyway, uh, we can go over there and eat supper at 545, and then at 640, 645, um, go to prayer. Finished at 730. And so that's another way when you spread out to be able to get the whole church together.
0: That's right. And there's no, there's no, nothing wrong with using those kinds of creative means to do that. Um, it, it's helpful. Uh, just a programming note, Dr. Piper, um, I do have a question from a live listener. Um, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Do you want me to push this to the bottom, or do you want to take it now?
1: Well, I take it. Um, anybody that's willing to listen, I want to take, ooh, Nepal earthquake left over two and a half million people homeless. That must be yeah. the old, that was a long time ago. It just came up on my screen, but okay.
0: I hope it's a lot. Well, they're worried about California.
1: <laughs> because they haven't had one in a while.
0: <laughs> well, they've they also, the San Andreas has been having some. Has been upset in recent days, and um, there's been minor uh, tremors yeah. uh, up and down the San Andreas. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do the live question now. Then, um, it, like I said, it has nothing to do uh, with what we're talking about, and, and understand uh, for those who are listening live and even on the recording, this is this is completely impromptu. This is
1: the advantage um, of listening live, folks.
0: Right. But Dr. Piper hasn't had a chance to think about or review this question, and, and, it's, and it's not without its controversy. But here's the question, um, and, and, and I'm not throwing you – and I, it's not a cheap shot, Dr. Pipe. If I thought it was, I wouldn't ask it. But here's the question. He, sa- he wants to know – the listener wants to know what your take is on the use of marijuana. Oh,
1: okay. I, I guess he's talking about recreational use of marijuana.
0: He doesn't specify. He just wants to know, okay. and it's based on a forthcoming book that's going to be released by Cruciform Press.
1: Okay. I um, I would say that if, if marijuana has medicinal properties under a doctor's prescription, it would be like using any other um, narcotic that would have medicinal mm-hmm. benefits. Recreational marijuana I'm opposed to uh, for uh, a couple of reasons— Uh, One is it is a gateway drug. I think the statistics and research uh, show that. Uh, Second is the purpose in using it. You know, it's often compared to, well, alcohol also a person can develop an addiction. Well, most people, alcohol would not be a gateway drug. And if they abuse alcohol, um, they have to go to a bit of of an extreme, so to speak, to do that. You know, a person can enjoy alcohol, uh, not wanting to get a uh, an altered state out of it.
0: Mm, Whereas mm-hmm. for
1: me, the recreational use of marijuana is to get an uh, an alternate state, and I think that's wrong. Anything that makes an alternate state, I think is is wrong, uh, biblically. And so because it is um, a gateway drug, because the purpose in using it is not simply a, a little relaxation, um, but you know, wine makes glad the heart of man, and there is a, a, a relaxing element to having a glass of wine, particularly sitting with a group of friends uh, and, uh, and enjoying a drink together, and then why one would smoke a joint of, of marijuana. And of course, the third reason is that in all but... What forty-eight states? It's illegal, and so at this point, uh, for a Christian, um, we need to uh, uh, submit to the law as it is.
0: Yeah, I've had extensive conversations with somebody very close to me on this subject, and um, though, and and I appreciate your answer, and I think you're right. I think this natural state issue is one that I haven't really thought through as carefully as I should and have presented that as an argument. But I think the I just simply based on the fact that if the, the laws of the land say, no, it's illegal, and, and the law is not asking me to sin by complying with that law, in, in my compliance with that law, then I as a Christian need to say, no, I can't do that um, uh, without question. I, I think that's absolutely absolutely uh, needs to be central to the discussion. But I think the other – the tangential issues or, the, or maybe closely related issues are the ones you've brought to the forefront. The natural – you know, altering your natural state. Um, you know, you can have a, a glass of wine at dinner. It doesn't do that. Um, you can smoke a cigar. It doesn't do that. Um, but these things do do that. And I – and and so – Yes. I mean, this is going to continue to be a hot issue, I think, for our country and for the church to wrestle with because um, more and more states are legalizing it. Um, You you mentioned 48. I think it's actually a lot less. I think it's less than that now. But um, I think the District of Columbia and Colorado for sure have legalized it. And I'm not sure of other states to have as well, but I'm not sure that's a positive thing for our culture uh, going forward. And we're going to have other problems, right, Dr. Piper? I mean, we have a problem with drinking and driving already, so what are we going to do now? We're going to have you know, under the influence of marijuana and driving. (laughs) I mean, what do we do with this? It's it's, it's a cultural dilemma that we're creating. Um, But I do appreciate the question. It's great that it comes from a live listener as well. All right. So let's get back to our regularly scheduled program, (laughs) as it were. David writes in from England, and he wants to know um, about your thoughts, Dr. Pipe, on the OPC Study Committee report on republication. Was there anything you were particularly pleased with or had concerns about?
1: Thanks, David, and thank you for listening. Uh, And thank you as well for asking me what my thoughts are and how I feel about it. So I... You're getting really triply commended today. (laughs) He's a longtime listener, so he probably
0: has been dramatically educated. (laughs) That's funny. Um,
1: I like the report, and uh, there's a couple of things about it that I think are just uh, excellent. The uh, whole historical theology discussion of uh, the Westminster divines, and you can see Chad Van Dixhorn's fingerprints, uh, all over that. After having sat in his class this summer,
0: mm.
1: um, because one of the things when you when I've read some of the stuff that they throw out these, uh, well, this this guy at the assembly believed this, and this guy believed that, and uh, what Van Dicks, well, what the report shows is that there was a fairly large consensus beyond what was written in the standards with respect to uh, the Mosaic Covenant. That was good. Second, their taxonomy, their their table was good, where they basically showed their four approaches. Three differed substantively with the Westminster Standards. One does not differ in substance from the Standards. That is useful, because then they could look at these various views. uh, It was a complete covenant of works, it was uh, subservient covenant of works, it was a mixed covenant. Uh, All of those in the taxonomy they show then is wrong. And so then the next part of the report uh, points out that their traditional approach to republication is that it's a substance, that the, the Mosaic covenant is substantively a covenant of works. It might have covenant of grace in it, but substantively, it's a covenant of works. They show that is wrong. Now, the other part of the report seeks to uh, go through and show then that Meredith Klein did not believe that the Covenant of Works was substantively a part of the Mosaic Covenant. I don't think it's very convincing, but that's really not the issue. The issue is is that, as it's understood traditionally, the the uh, republication, is uh, substantively um, covenant of works and not just covenant of grace. Now, I guess I need to back up. I jumped into this, David, without educating my hearers. The whole idea of republication is that um, the Mosaic covenant repeats the covenant of works in a substantive way. And the traditional approach has been that it's repeated and it's through the covenant of works that the children of Israel would inherit the land. That's right. And so the people were not saved through the covenant of works, but the Mosaic covenant itself was a covenant by which the covenant of works was repeated that they might inherit the land. So that's what it means by substantively. Now, administratively, it's not. And that's the fourth table on uh, the fourth column in the taxonomy. And is there some restatement within the Mosaic covenant of the covenant of work? So when it says do this and live, that is there. Why is it there? Murray and Robertson said it's simply a guide for sanctification and enjoy God, enjoying God's blessings. But Turton and many others say it is at that point a repetition of that divine promise. And so that is repeated for two reasons, to push people to Christ. Well, let me back up. That principle is true. If you do not keep the law of God perfectly, you cannot be saved. And so it's repeated in the Mosaic covenant uh, because it is a biblical truth that drives us to Christ, who as our substitute kept the Mosaic law perfectly or kept the all of God's commandments perfectly, as well as suffered the penalty of the violated covenant of works. So that's been in various ways how some people have historically thought about, quote, republication, but it's not substantively part of uh, the Mosaic covenant. So I think the report's very useful uh, in the way it gets to the issue and uh, shows that any version of republication that says substantively the covenant of works is part of the Mosaic covenant is against the confession.
0: Yeah, very good. And and for those who are not aware, um, the the report, the study committee report is available online. Um, don't ask me this second where exactly it would be. I imagine it's on the opc.org. Just go to opc
1: at opc.org and look for the PDF version of yep. the publication report.
0: Well, what I'll do for the listeners is I will add that to the as it were, the show notes of this particular faith and practice. So you can, there'll be a link there taking you right to it so you can read through it yourself. And to follow up a little bit, um, I forget the author, um, sadly, I'm reading his book, but I forget the man's name. Um, One Lord, One People, he actually deals with this. I don't know that he, I don't know that he knows that he's dealing with this when he's writing about it, but he talks about these questions and do this and live issues. And I, I thought his treatment of that was, was was very good, um, and, and as he, as he goes through, especially the, the section in Deuteronomy, um, about the curses and the blessings, and so, um, anyway, there's a lot out there, but I will try to link that, um, to this particular edition of the Faith and Practice episode, so that the listeners can have that resource available to them to, to look at and review, Uh, but David, thank you for the question. I've got
1: a, a, a brief, uh, paper that I did at a conference a couple years ago here, Mm -hmm. And uh, we can get that posted as well. Uh, That paper, one of the things that paper does is probably gets more simply to the issues of republication uh, that would concern some of us. So we could get that available as well, Bill.
0: Okay, very good. We'll do that too. We'll do that as well. All right. Chris writes. Uh, Cur- I'm sorry. Curtis writes in from um, Missouri, and um, I believe this is the first time he's ever written in. But I do appreciate you listening, Curtis. And he has a question on church membership. It's rather lengthy. I'm going to try to distill this as best I'm able um, throughout the question. But it has to do with church membership, and he asks, uh, or he he comments. He says recently. He watched the floor examination of a a candidate for ordination at Presbytery. He was asked from the floor about a hypothetical situation. Would he allow a parent who wishes to become a communing member but states they do not subscribe to infant baptism and will not baptize their children to take membership vows? He stated that he would allow them to become members. The answer was followed up with another question if he considered failure to baptize the children to be a great sin. Per Westminster Standards 28.5, he answered he did. Now, I think we can stop there, and I think you you understand the thrust of this question, Dr. Platt, but you obviously have it in front of you.
1: Yes. um, Well, it's a very important question. It is. He goes on to point out that there's been two approaches to this. The continental reform tradition, which would be your Dutch reformed churches primarily, require subscription to all the doctrines of their confessional statements: the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgian Confession. So that requires infant baptism. It requires a, a belief in election, all the five points, everything. Mm. Presbyterianism, and Samuel Miller actually wrote on the uh, the doctrine. What do you call that? The uh, of Presbyterian liberality. Yep. Um, the Presbyterian position has historically been: uh, we're we're all works in progress. And so what we have required is not a confessional subscription, but a credible profession of faith. So the person must have a basic grasp, a commitment to the Trinity. I like the way the OPC has added that question to the membership vows, to the authority of Scripture, to Christ alone as the uh, God incarnate, Savior, of sinners, repentance, and faith, commitment to a godly life. Now, the um, and so the, the man that's answering this question at Presbytery is answering the question the way a, um, I think, biblically-based traditional Presbyterian would answer the question. It's the way that I answer the question at my ordination exam. And in my churches, we have allowed, uh, these would be called Credo Baptists, to join the church. But now... With these stipulations,
0: mm-hmm. they
1: must never absent themselves from uh, a baptism of an infant. They must agree to continue to study the issue, and then they may never, even in private conversation, seek to dissuade someone of a paedo-baptist position. They cannot serve as a church officer. They could teach a Sunday school class if they were so gifted, as long as it was not dealing with the covenant and with the uh, with the sacraments. And we've had people in our churches then who have uh, submitted to that and have been very uh, profitable and productive members of the church. So that's the approach historically. Now there are some Presbyterian churches that require... Uh, a commitment to uh, infant baptism, but that's not been the general order of uh, Presbyterianism. Now, the follow-up question I think is very important. Bill, stopped before we got there. Uh, yep. What other great sins would you allow people to commit and still take membership vows? Well, I would allow them not to believe in the doctrine of election. Uh, there'd be many sins of understanding that... Uh, The same provision, that they would uh, continue to study this, never absent themselves from a service where it was being taught, and never themselves seek to undermine the faith of others. Recently, as I've wrestled with this, from another direction, it's helped me, because I'm often asked the question, if a person doesn't come to the Sunday night service, are they sinning? And the answer Mm -hmm. is yes, they are. Yes, but I'm right. taking Sunday night service because it is so. The Sabbath is so misunderstood in our society. I'm, I'm saying it is a sin to neglect the Sunday night service. And you will be told on pastoral visits. You will hear in sermons, and you will be encouraged uh, that you are to be there. But I'm not going to bring discipline against you if. You are not coming to the Sunday night service unless it is because you are involved in public activities that are a violation of the Lord's Day. I know that's inconsistent, but I'm trying to apply the same principle uh, to Sunday night service that I'm applying to baptism. So a person that rejected baptism couldn't be a member of the church. The person that didn't come to Sunday morning service regularly would be under church discipline. But the person who says, I'm just not convinced about Sunday night service, I want to be home with my family uh, or whatever, uh, you're, you're taking this vow. Now, they need to tell the elders in the front end, I'm taking this vow, but you need to understand I have, I'm exempting Sunday night attendance. If they say, I'm taking the vow and I understand, and I'm vowing to come on Sunday night, then you've got a different question uh, That's right. going on. Then you've got a person that took a vow to God and are not fulfilling it. So it, it, something needs to be clarified on the front end as well.
0: You know, and I think that what's what's interesting about this question, um, if I can be so, um, if I can try to read into it a little bit, um, and maybe the listener did, didn't intend this, but there are sins that are committed by members in the church that are, they're sin. We sin daily in thought, word, and deed. Every one of our sins are a reprehensible offense to God. But not every sin that's committed by members in the church is necessarily at the level that requires censure from the session or from the courts of the church, such as, okay, the one you just mentioned, the evening service, unless it's because, well, I'm not coming to Sunday evening service because I want to stay home and watch football, or I want to go to the football game. I mean, maybe we have to parse that out a little bit, but I think think that's what we're getting to at the end. It's like, what sins ultimately require a censure from a church court— and which ones, though still sin, uh, aren't scandalous to the point of, that require a censure from the church? Maybe, Dr. Piper, fleshed that out a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's where I am. Uh, there are sins of fallibility. Dr. Gerstner used to make the distinction. The person who said, I don't believe in election because I don't see it in Scripture, is sinning. <laughs> but it's different from the person who says, I don't care what Scripture says. I'm not gonna right. believe the doctrine of election. The first right. can make a credible profession of faith. The second cannot make a credible profession of faith.
0: Yep. Yep. And I and I think that it, you know, it what whether the listener intended this or not, the, the practicality of this question, uh, especially for those in, in as elders in the church, is huge because you you're gonna constantly weigh this. Um You have a member in the church that won't come to the second service, and and it's not that they won't come, but why won't they come? I mean, I've I've often said to our elders, um, almost every theological issue has pastoral undertones, and um, in fact, I think the argument can be made that every theological issue has pastoral undertones as it's played out by the members in the church, and so we have to— in our visits with the members, ask those questions: Why aren't you coming to the second service? Is there some reason you're prevented from coming? Is it a sinful reason, or is it you're just not there yet? Why won't you baptize your children? I mean, you know, we're, we're just we're all processes, we're all learning, and and so I think this question really gets at even deeper issues, maybe than even was intended. But um, it's a great question, and I and I wish we would think through this even more so going forward. But very good answer, Dr. Pipe, and I appreciate. <clears throat> what you had to say now um we have about three more minutes i'm looking so, I mean, here i, I don't want to think the next i don't want to do I the think, next no okay so we'll skip steve i think <laughs> sorry <let's Steve>. just,
1: <laughs> we'll, i'll be the first one next time steve it's a great question but it's so important i want to devote more than two minutes to it
0: okay do you want let's just go answer? to
1: isaac's question quickly
0: Okay, uh, Isaac asks, a long-time listener, writes in probably, I would say, every month. Um, very good. Glad to have it. And he asks a question on Eastern Orthodoxy. And and make sure, Dr. Piper, in your answer, you define what that is, Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, he says, thank you again for faith and practice. is very useful ministry. Uh, thank you, Isaac, for that. And he says, my question relates to the Eastern Church. What is your view on how Reformed Christians should view the Eastern Orthodox Church?
1: Okay, okay. Um- well, do what you ask. I'm not going to get this done in two minutes. The Eastern Orthodox Church Sorry about that. is the um, ancient church that, when the church between the East and West, uh, the, the Eastern Church developed uh, a Greek language church. And that was centered around four major cities, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Alexandria. The Western Church centered around Rome. The Eastern Church was Greek. Uh, In its language, Western Church was Latin. The Eastern Church was much more uh, man-centered in its theology, uh, had a much worse view of uh, the autonomy of human will, was open to what we call uh, Pelagianism, uh, and was not very well systematically grounded. The Eastern Church probably... Theologically, has not gone anywhere since the 5th or 6th century. It's kind of frozen in time. Mm -hmm. It is mystical in orientation and not word-based. And so the service, each service, is a repetition of the entire incarnation and gospel. Um, It is sacramental, like the Roman church, it simply hasn't thought through its sacramentalism to the degree the Roman church has, but it still would not have the key doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so because of that, then I would say that a Reformed Christian should not be comfortable um, with the Eastern Orthodox Church, which now is no longer simply when you got the Russian Orthodox Church and you've got these different um uh, manifestations of it but they all would basically uh, have uh, that same <laughs> approach in most towns in America it's the Greek Orthodox Church and you can recognize them they have a big um, uh, festival for the public with food and all that every uh, spring uh, but you got Russian Orthodox churches in America and others like that as well
0: Yep. well very good question and that would be the final question for today. Um, we still have others that we have not we have not yet got uh, have not yet dealt with, and so. But please, as listeners listening live, um, and we have a number uh, today listening live, and uh, others who listen to this recording, which will come out in two weeks. Uh, for those listening live, you can get the whole thing in two, in two weeks. I'm going to try to get these closer together. Um, I've had a number of complaints from listeners, not complaints. That's probably not fair, but just. They're so eager to get the, these programs uh, in their hands quickly, and I've been waiting about a month or so uh, between them. And, 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 uh, so, but anyway, in two weeks, this program will be released, October 17th, as a matter of fact. Um, it will be out and available widely uh, to the public. But, that, but there are other questions. We've we'll got three questions get, get we didn't to. get to today. They're
1: excellent questions. Yep. Uh, and they're, they're very keep good. Keep sending your other questions in, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll plow on.
0: And so those will be at the top of the list for for uh, faith and practice number 31. It's hard to believe 30. We've done 30 of these. That's, um, you know, if I do my math right, what's that? Uh, once a month. It's two and a half years. Many, yeah, two and a half years worth. I, I kind of joke, jokingly, seriously say <laughs> you're kind of getting a seminary education uh, for free uh, through all these different questions that people write in. But please do write in. And um, you can do so uh, through our website, ConfessingOurHope.com. You can do it on Twitter. Uh, just make sure you use the hashtag GPTSFP. Uh, you're obviously limited to 140 characters. And so um, you can use that. I will get that information and I will compile it and put it in Dr. Piper's hands and he will d- address it uh, in due course. Coming up on the program, Ken Golden um, will be on next week to talk about um, a book he has written. He's an o- he's an Orthodox Presbyterian Church minister, and he's written a book called Presbytopia. And don't worry about it if you're like, what does that mean? Well, I... I- I'd certainly ask that question on the program, and so uh, he'll be on to talk about that. But it's a really great interview. I've already done the interview. Um, It's fantastic for you ministers, elders who are trying to do uh, uh, church membership training uh, with new members. It's a fantastic little booklet. And so um, look forward to that interview. Uh, The week after that, David Randall will be on the program to talk about a very sad situation that happened in the Church of Scotland, but um, it was a really encouraging and edifying discussion. I've already done that interview as well. And so uh, that's a, a highlight of what's coming up next couple programs. And of course we're working on other things. I have Dr. Wilborn scheduled to do an interview on parish ministry and um we're going to be talking with others. Uh I happen to know actually who this person will be. Uh we're going to talk about ministering in small churches. Um you know, how do you how how do you pastor in a small church setting in a small rural area in fact? You know, what are some of the troubles and difficulties? And so th- these are some of the topics we're working on. We're doing other things as well and um so Pay attention to the website confessingourhope.com. Uh, my assistant Drew Pressoir, who's also a student of the seminary, um, is he's excellent. Um, I am so thankful for his labors and his work behind the scenes. He makes this possible. Uh, he secures all these guests and topics, and um, so. Um, he He's actively working to get these, these, these things into your hands and, 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 and these topics into your head to think through. And so um, go to the website, ConfessingOurHope.com, and there you'll get all that information. Additionally, I, just, I do want to uh, point out that uh, the seminary is, um, depends upon the prayerful support of, 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 of those who believe in what Greenville Seminary is doing. I mean, we're very simple. Uh, we want to train men who are going to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's a simple goal, uh, but it takes work, labor, effort, uh, four years of arduous training. Uh, seminary staff and faculty, they're committed to the work that they're doing. It's a labor of love, I can tell you for, for certain it is. And so if, if it is something that you uh, would like to support, uh, go to our website, gpts.edu. You can donate to the seminary a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. $50, whatever, it is helpful to the work that they're doing. It is very important. Uh, we live in a day and age that, that, that need, we need this more. And so help us out, pray for the seminary, and support the seminary with your finances if you're able to do that. And so I do want to make sure I, I, I say that because this is a podcast of the seminary, and we're doing that not just to promote the seminary, but we're doing it for many other reasons, but this is one of them. And so help us out. Pray for us and pray for the seminary. Pray for the work and support her as you're able. Dr. Pepe, any concluding remarks? No, Bill. Thank you very much. You bet. Well, until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition, Faith and Practice number 30. And stay tuned to further editions of this program. And we thank you for listening uh, as usual. Until next time, uh, we do uh, ask and encourage that you uh, visit our website and continue to listen to us. And God bless.